Friends, good morning. It's so uh, great to be back with you. Uh, we're going to be starting a new book today. Uh, just for the next two weeks, we're going to be looking at the book of Haggai. And it's a really a short book right at the end of the Old Testament. It's one of the 12 books of the minor prophets. And they're called that uh, because they're a bit shorter than the four longer books of the major prophets. And they're also uh, books of prophecy. Uh, our book today is written by a man called Haggai, and so it has his name. And that's where we are this week and next week uh, as we look at what God is saying uh, through him and what it was all about. With views of Benati Hill to the south, the sun shines on Loch Leven ahead on this small Scottish town, this small Scottish hamlet called Cleish. It's a home to a few hundred people, about 250. And right there in its center, surrounded by fields, uh, something that's been there since the 13th century, a church there for years and years. I've attended that church. It's a beautiful stone building. It's close to where I'm from in Scotland. There's been there many times, especially around Christmas if I'm visiting. And my grandfather and my great-grandparents and many relatives are all buried in the uh, cemetery right behind. It's the same church where uh, 38 years ago my parents got married. And in this little corner of Scotland, it really holds a special place in my heart. I've got to be honest. I feel the same emotion and uh, the same sense of home every time I'm there. I was there just last week. And so I can really imagine some of uh, what we see in the text, some of what the Israelites were feeling as they were returning home, as they were coming back to their nation after almost 70 years in exile. Some things were the same. The same for me. Some things were the same as I returned. The same for them. Even more so, many things had changed. It's at this point in history, right at the end of the exile, that we open today in Haggai. After many years of warning, many years of discipline due to disobedience and ultimately their rebellion, God has used many kings to keep the Israelites away and what they knew had changed. What they knew had changed or even been destroyed. Before this point in Haggai, they had already been allowed to return home under the, the rule of King Cyrus. God again using another king to bring them home. And in the book of Ezra, uh, through to Esther, if you look there even this week, we see the return and some of the restoration that goes on in Jerusalem. And it's right in the midst of all of this, right in the midst of all of this Israelite history that the prophecy of Haggai arrives. It's through these prophets that we know along the way just exactly what God was doing and what he was saying, what he was expecting, what he was calling the people to and what he wanted. So turn with me, if you can, uh, to the book of Haggai. We've got Bibles at the back as well if you'd like to turn there. But we're just going to be looking at Haggai chapter 1 together today. Let me read it for us. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, 
On the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while, the, while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it. And that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of the hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. Friends, as we... Look at this text. I think the main point of the passage and therefore the main point of our time together is our restoration should lead to rebuilding. Our restoration should lead to rebuilding. I think our text today, if you look there, just falls into three sections. And so these are going to be our three points. In verses one to two, we have our first point. Hello, who's there? Verses 1 to 2, our first point, hello, who's there? And then in verses 3 to 11, we have a second point, a call to consider. A call to consider. And then finally, in verses 12 to 15, an answer of obedience. An answer of obedience. To look at our first point, hello, who's there? Verses 1 to 2. I think our first point sits within these first two verses as the book opens and there's just a lot going on there immediately if you're looking at the text. Just even just in verse one, you see the historical context of 
the book established in just the first few words. We learn so much there. Because straight away, you see that Darius, a non-Israelite, he's on the throne. And this is the second year of his reign. And this is the first day of the sixth month. Yet again, friends, just a reminder that what we're reading here is a real account. It's happening in a real place to a real people that live under a real king. This is a true event. This is not a myth. This is the true history of just a small Middle Eastern people some 2,500 years ago. Everything that we're seeing today in our chapter is happening in the year 520 B.C., That's when Darius is on the throne. We know that for a fact. And what is happening and what Haggai is about to tell the people is essential for them. And it's recorded uh, here for us today. It's in the word of God here for a purpose. It's in our Bibles. As God wants us, he wants you and me to, to hear and to listen to these reminders, to get a glimpse into what was happening in the hearts of these people. He wants us to to then turn and look at our own hearts, examine our own actions. He has calls to action and a call to obedience to us here in Ras al-Khaimah this morning. So if you look there at the text, Darius, he's on the throne. He's a king from Persia and one that helpfully was supportive of the Israelite efforts. His name is a positive one in Israelite history, but again, one that reminds them of their exile. The rule of the king's of other lands. Darius is not a Davidic king. This dating, I think, also helps us know that the people have been back from their exile. This really helps us uh, see where we are in their chronology, that they've been back from exile for about 20 years at this point. What we're about to read happens just after their harvest, just after their new moon. All of this would have been significant and important and would have been known by the early readers. Who was on the throne? What time of year was it? What were the people doing? We all know these kind of things from our home countries, where we're from. We know when it's hot and when it's cold. We know when, what time of year the supermarkets are busy, what public holidays causes there to be a rush on a certain item in the stores. We know when church is going to be very busy or perhaps very quiet on a certain Sunday. Friends, we have some of that local knowledge and that's all helpful for us here. That's what's locked into these first couple of verses for us. Everything in Haggai happens within just a four-month period and a very specific time in their history. And so these date stamps, these things that we might just skim across as you might have read it this week or as you uh, maybe read Haggai 2 this coming week, they're not meaningless. They help show us that all of this, everything we're reading is happening in God's timing. It's all happening within God's control. It relates to, to his initiation. It's his encouragement. That it's he that brings about the change required. It's he that is changing And calling for change in the hearts of the people. And it's he that will ultimately rebuild his temple. And it's he that will build his church. So the date is given. Darius is on the throne. And now we get into why these two things are important. Read with me in verse 1. The word of the Lord came. 
the word of the Lord came. After years in exile, after rebellion, after the pain and the correction of this discipline, like drops of rain in the desert after a long season, we know exactly what that is like. How precious, how wonderful, how amazing are these six words that Haggai brings. The word of the Lord came. After deafening silence. God is speaking again. And yet again, this is God's initiation to his people. What we're about to see is yet again, God in his patience, God in his mercy. He's firmly and graciously reminding his people of who he is and how he is worthy. He is worthy of their devotion. He's worthy of their whole lives. Hope we here yet again can be reminded of this same wonderful truth. That you know that yet again it is God in his mercy. That he's reaching out to you. Many of you know him. Some of you don't. He wants you to know that he is God. And he is in control. And he is worthy of giving everything to. But who is it that God is using to speak. Our text says, by the hand of Haggai. We're not told much about Haggai, but this lack of introduction, I think we can conclude that he was, he was known to the people. He was someone they trust and someone that God had clearly chosen to be his special messenger for this moment. This is not Haggai's message, the, the by the hand here. That just means Haggai wrote it down. We see the same phrase used with Moses. This is God speaking. Make no doubt about that. As we'll see that the leaders and then the people, they, they don't do that either. They know that this is from God. So we have God's messenger here given by God's, uh, God's message, sorry, given by God's chosen messenger at God's initiation. We see that it's initially given to these two leaders of the people. One, a, a judicial, a political leader, Zerubbabel, and the other, a, a religious, a church, a minister, a pastor, the priest, Joshua. Their heritage given to us too, so that we'll know Zerubbabel is the grandson of an heir to the Davidic throne. And this is Joshua. He's a high priest from the line of Zadok and Aaron. Friends, these details are important as we'll see these two men play a key role in the community they are the leaders the overseers this is a message for all the people that is given first to the leaders to then walk with their people into i hope for you that uh, leadership is not something you're scared of good leaders should help us to feel safe they should provide security and they also should be able to make hard decisions and to walk with their people through that, to hold on to what is right, to lead towards what God has said, to guard, to protect. As one of your elders here, that is our desire too. We need your help with that. We need your prayers as we seek to guard and protect what God has given 
to us to lead with wisdom, to lead with integrity, to make bold decisions and to hold on to what is right. We trust God and we see clearly in his word what he has said about his church or his people. And week by week, I hope you know that we endeavor to lead you well in these things. Please be praying for us as we pray for you. Please talk to us as we talk to you. Please be in our lives as we try to be in yours. Please trust us as we try to lead you. But know that we're not perfect, the elders, not by any stretch of the imagination. Please know that we don't know everything and that we're simply humbly trying to walk week in and week out in the wisdom of what God has given us and to try to do all these things for his glory. As we seek to build his church in this little corner of the UAE to preach the gospel so that many will come to faith in Jesus Christ. I hope you see that leaders are important. Please be praying for yours. So Haggai here in our text is bringing the word of God to the people and their leaders. And in two verses, we hear the drumbeat again and again. This time, the title given, not just the Lord but the Lord of hosts. NIV translation says the Lord Almighty. I think there is so much packed into this title that's given to God and we're meant to feel the the sheer weight of these words. The Lord of hosts. This is the title given to God nearly 200 times in the Bible and one third of them happen here in in this little corner of the Old Testament in Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. One third of them. The Lord of hosts. The Lord Almighty. We're meant to feel that. To to feel that weight. To stop and just for a second. Consider who it is that we're reading about. The Lord of all things on on earth and in heaven. The only one. The king and the mighty ruler of all things. The one who has no beginning. And no end. Who always was and who always will be. Like no other. The one who is beyond our comprehension in every way. Different from every angle that you examine him from. But always exactly the same. He's the same yesterday, today and forever. Never stopping and never starting. He is love. He is joy. He is peace. He is mercy. This is who after All these years, having watched and seen and organized and prepared, is speaking. This is God. Instructions had been clear, the priorities given, yet he has to bend and say to the people, you say that this is not the time to build my house. Have the people forgotten? the people fallen so far who do they think they are from the outset we have to be under no illusions friends or mystery that God cares about his house and it being built the people and their sin have made them distant 
from God. They are no longer my people. But there in the text we see they are these people. Their rebellion, even slow and steady, has caused them to drift from God as as it does with anyone. In any relationship one can drift when one ignores the other person. Or when one does the opposite of what the other person has asked. Or one stops caring about the other. The people here have forgotten about God. Friend, is it the same with you? Have you neglected your relationship with God? Have you taken a break, maybe, from reading his word? Have you stopped bringing your life and every situation before him in prayer? Maybe this is the first time you've been to church in a long time. Maybe you thought about not even coming this morning. Drift happens. If you've been in the sea at all, you know how quickly this happens, how subtle it is. And soon enough, all around you has changed. All that you're doing and saying, living in a way that would have been simply unimaginable before. Friend, have you been drifting? Hear this warning today and grab this this safety ring that Haggai is throwing out to all the people, but to us this morning by the word of the Lord. Come to him. Bring your whole life before him. Prioritize him over everything else. We here, we're a community, a family of believers that have covenanted to help each other do this. We've made a promise to look out for and to care for one another. We have to shout stop when someone gets too close to the rocks. We help warn a, a brother or sister when they look like they're drifting. That's why we study the word together and we gather to sit under the word of God. Like we're doing right now and we pray and we ask hard questions in this community that he has provided for us. All of this to bring glory to his name. We'll come back to this, but the glory of God is at stake here in our text, but it's at stake here in this corner of Ras al These opening two verses, friends, are crystal clear. After this introduction, we see that it is God calling. He is the one speaking into the darkness and calling out to his people. As we look at point two, we then hear what he is saying to them and what he is calling to them. Make no mistake, the people have got it wrong. God's presence is important. God's house is important. Look with me at point two. A call to consider. Verses three to 11. A call to consider. Our second and largest point begins in verse three with a repetition of Haggai's hand being the one to bring the prophecy from the Lord. And we should hear that reinforcement, that or a reinforcement of his authority. And what follows when the Lord speaks again is a, a fairly brutal rhetorical question, one that I think he understandably is expecting the answer to be no to. Is it okay that you sorted out your own house before fixing God's? The answer clearly no. The people are accused of living in panelled houses. I think this means their houses are so fixed and decorated that they've got different kinds of panelling on the walls. 
Maybe it's wooden, maybe it's decorative, we don't fully know, but so much has been taken care of in their own space and their own houses at the cost and neglect of God's. There is to be a contrast here. These paneled and beautiful homes they've built are to sit in direct comparison to the ruins here of God's house. People have taken so much care of themselves and what they prioritize and ignored, neglected all that God has called them to. God's temple, God's house, sitting in ruins, this symbol, this literal house of God's presence among them, lying in ruins. The God of the universe, the Lord of hosts, the Lord Almighty, unwelcome among them, rejected, ignored, cast out, homeless. This is meant to be shocking to us, friends. You can almost see the huge pause there must have been between verse 4 and verse 5. People had returned. They had known the promises of God. They had heard the stories of God's presence with his people. Many had even known and remembered the formal temple and its glory. What that had meant, but after threat and despondency and weakness and ultimately selfishness, we see that the temple of the Lord lies untouched. And so God calls out after all these years, firmly, lovingly, mercifully, after all this time to point it out and say, guys, come on, look at my house. What has happened? What has happened? What have they been doing? What have they done with the the time and resources and the energy that God has given them there? We're about to see, and we're about to see that it's not pretty. It's a good point for us to to stop, to think individually, to consider ourselves. Friends, how are you using your time? How are you using your resources? How have you been using your salary, for example? If you're a member here, then in our church covenant, you've agreed to support the work of the ministry here. That means giving financially. Just to be completely crystal clear about it. Is that something you do? If you're a guest here, I don't mean this for you. Of course, you're very welcome to give. This is very much for the members of this specific local church. Friends, this is something every Christian is called to do, to work and to give and support of the ministry at their local church. If you've not been doing this, perhaps you've forgotten. Perhaps this is just a a welcome reminder. Perhaps maybe you've been focused on other things. Perhaps you've been getting your own house in order first before giving to the work of God here in Ras al Look there, back at the text. See the word consider. 
It's used five times in, this, in the book of Haggai, and two of them occur just in this second point of ours, here in verse 5 and verse 7, as the Lord shows the link between what they have done and how the Lord has responded. And so we're to see the links between the two here. So in verse 5, they're told to consider their ways, literally meaning in the Hebrew, set your heart on your ways. Look at your own heart, what you have done. Check your heart. And then we read of all the dissatisfaction and brokenness that has followed them as they have sought their own desires over God's. We know from the the dates given that this was right after harvest and so this prophecy was hitting them hard. It was about to get worse. They have sown a lot and harvested little. They eat and they drink but they're never full. This is an awful situation. If you've ever played football in rack, you know exactly what it feels like to drink and never have your thirst questioned. To never fully have that thirst quenched and satisfied under the heat this is what it was like for them every day to eat and drink and not know any satisfaction they would wrap themselves in clothes and blankets but the materials so bad and so poor that they were never truly warm we read that what they earn seems to just disappear the picture here just of a a money bag or a purse that has holes in it Such dissatisfaction and a lack of joy, a total focus on their own needs and their own comfort, their food, their shelter, their warmth. The complete lack of attention to the house of the Lord, the temple. The situation is even worse. We'll look at that in verses 10 and 11, that this lack is all from God, that God has not blessed their crops due to their preference for themselves and not for him friends as we look back over the old testament and how the people got to this place we know they should not be surprised this is what they are told would happen in the law given to moses in deuteronomy it was made clear to them that they did not keep his commands that there would be famine there would be drought in the land god has simply kept his promises And his commands are clear. The people were still provided for. They still had food and drink and clothing. But there was no abundance. There was no enjoyment. There was not to be blessing. Because of their obedience. If by now they had rebuilt the temple and followed Yahweh. And fully returned him. Fully returned to him after the exile. There would have been abundance. There would have been feasts of food. There would have been great joy with wine to drink, warm clothing and blankets to not have to lose their wages to wild markets or would have had enough to spare at the end of the month. They are simply receiving what God has promised in his covenant with them. They disobeyed. They disobeyed and so they miss out. Yet again, of course, of course, What does God do again and again and again? He makes a way. A way for his people to be reconciled to him after they've been without his presence. Due to their own sin and rebellion. I hope 
you realize that sounds familiar. Verse 8 for us is central to all that God is doing here. It's the main point with a call to go and fetch wood to build his house so that he can take pleasure in it and that the Lord will be glorified. Friends, it's the same with each of us, each and every one of them, me and you. If we've been restored in our relationship with God, then we should desire to see his church built up. But due to the decisions each of us has made since our first breath, we've lived in disobedience to God. We are responsible. We are each in rebellion to him due to our own sin. How we're each born of Adam and Eve who there in the garden, the first temple, had a perfect relationship in the presence of God. But they sinned and rejected him. Due to sin and rebellion, we have each, each one of us been guilty of prioritizing ourselves. Putting ourselves first before God. Our own needs and our own desires. Yet, yet again, gently, kindly, mercifully, he has made a way for us to be in his presence once again. It's through the sending of his only son, Jesus Christ. Jesus came to live a, a perfect life, to live. Then he died on the cross, a cruel death, taking the punishment that each of us deserved for our sin and our rebellion against a holy God. And then he died on that cross and he rose again on the third day. It was there, there that God's perfect plan of restoration was seen and Jesus took joy in what he did and we see God glorified as many sinners are restored, many hearts changed. But for each person here, each one of us, there is a call. A call that goes out, one that each of us has to answer. Who will you worship? Will it be yourself or will it be Jesus Christ? In Luke, we see Jesus calling people to repentance to come before God and say, sorry, and this is the same today. There is no way, friends, to be saved from an eternal punishment unless you say sorry to God and you accept the sacrifice of what Jesus did on the cross for you, taking the punishment that you deserve. Jesus says clearly, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Here in verse, verses 9 and 10 and 11, we read the direct effects of disobedience to God and how, like a loving father, his joy is to discipline his children. Because he loves them. Because he cares for them. He cares about his glory. As parents, we know and understand that we see the good in that. The need for consequences. The need for consistency. To withhold and to correct is to want the best for our children. This is what God is doing here. It always has a purpose. This comes from God. God, here in these verses again, repeats again and confirms. Not only was the situation bad for the people, that it was from him. He blew their crops away. He withheld the morning dew. He caused the earth 
to withhold its produce. He caused a drought, a lack of wine to frustrate the man and his beasts. Friends, the people had been promised a life of abundance, of milk and of honey, of rivers rushing by and morning dew bringing joy and growth. If they obeyed him, under his covenant, we clearly see the blessings, but we also here clearly see the curses that follow from the lives of the people. Side note, just that therefore in verse 10 confirms all of that. If you look there at verse 10, that therefore, because of all of this rebellion, and selfishness how my house lies in ruins and you have ignored me and not welcomed me back into your community therefore now comes all of this as we already said they have forgotten who they're dealing with that they're dealing with the lord of hosts the lord god almighty the one who is in control of the wind and the rain and the lands and the beasts our economies our leaders. Friends, this is why we pray for the leaders of our country every week. Because we know God is in complete control that all of their authority comes from him. All of this, everything in our lives happens under his hands and in his oversight. What we see wonderfully in our third and our final point, this final section of chapter one is the God-inspired and God-given obedience of the people. Look there at verses 12 to 15 with me in our third point. An answer of obedience. An answer of obedience. After looking at their hearts and seeing the effects of what they've done, we now see a phrase in the final section that occurs three times. And has not been seen in the previous verses. We see it twice in 12 and again in 14. The phrase, their God. The phrase, their God. It's hugely significant. We are told that the people obeyed the voice of the Lord, their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord, their God, had sent him. Friends, the message had been faithfully delivered. In verses 12 to 13, we see that the purpose has been achieved. And then in verse 14, we see how that happens. Now throughout the the Bible, see the prophecies are instructions from God. That he is choosing to speak to his people, calling them to action. They don't just sit there, these prophecies on their own, as some sort of cute message from God. They are a word from the Lord, a call that must be answered. It's the call from the Lord that ultimately causes the people's hearts to change. It's a call from the Lord that drives their obedience. And it's the same for each of us as Christians. There's a call of God and the wonderful message we see at the end of verse 13. There where it says, I am with you, declares the Lord. It's not a harsh or brutal message. It's not one of punishment or even more destruction, but 
a voice again of mercy and love. A loving father calling a people to himself. I am with you. It's the promise of his presence that brings the people to repentance and obedience. Look there at verses 14 and 15. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. Their God. Friends, there is so much here of the sovereignty and the grace of God and how he again here keeps his promises. He brings his covenant promises and reminds the people the key language, the wonderful phrase, I am with you. And all that means for them, the, the safety of that, the security of being under God's sovereign plans, knowing that and enjoying that. It's he It's God that has brought the good news. It is he that has secured their position. It's he that has changed their hearts. It's he that has stirred up their spirit to rebuild the temple. Their sin and their rebellion all fade and dissolve away in obedience when met with God's word and confirmed by God's presence. It's he that helps them. It's he that sustains them. For the first time in years, people love God and not just the gifts God brings. There is a huge, huge difference between those two things. Loving God or loving his gifts. Friends, this is the same for us. And we see this Time and time again in the New Testament as God's temple is now shown to be in each of us. That as we believe we now have the Holy Spirit. God is with us. Ephesians tells us in him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. First Corinthians remind us that for God's temple is holy and you are that temple the people of God and the temple of God here together as the visible church in Ras al-Khaimah. God has called us to obey his word and not fail to build his church as a restored people, as those brought back to relationship with God. His call to us is clear that our lives are not our own, that there was a price that had to be paid by Jesus Christ and that in turn Our lives are now to be lived for his glory, for God's glory in every way, at every turn, with every dirham, with every word, with every deed. Friends, does this describe your life? Is this what I would see in your days and your weeks? Studying hard can bring God glory. Obeying your mom and dad can bring God glory. Standing up for what is right brings God glory. Being faithful in how you do your job brings God glory. 
Friends, consider your heart this week. Ask God this week to stir up you a a spirit that obeys and trusts him and his promises. Friends, that church I mentioned at the beginning when my parents were married, that church that has stood for 700 years or so after many sad and poor choices the ministry has changed and the ministry has finally come to an end heard last week that as i was visiting there that that church has just been put up for sale it'll now be a home for someone else or apartments or an event space but it will no longer house the gathered people of god and it struck me as i read our chapter for today that it's God who gives it's God who builds and it's God who takes away we can all be so short-sighted like the Israelites here we can be so focused on our projects at home or the car we would like or maybe our next career move or the fields in front of us not all bad things but we can forget God and his word. I love this quote from Jim Elliott. It's a missionary who went to Ecuador to reach people that had never heard the gospel to tell them about who Jesus was and what that meant for them. He said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Friends, you cannot keep your life. This life and this world will pass away. Yes, we, of course, we need to live here. We need to work and survive. We're called by God to live in a way that brings glory to him. And we live, if you're a Christian here, you live for another time. You're meant to live for another place. This is not your home. This is not it. Praise God. This is not it. There's another life after this, an eternity spent with God for those who have lived for him and have worshipped him and submitted to Christ. Friends, is this you? If not, then you will pass away and perish. You will spend eternity somewhere else separated from all that is good in torment living everlastingly with no joy no satisfaction no God friend call out to Jesus if you're a Christian live in a way that looks forward to the next life live in a way that humbly empties yourself for the glory of God for you know the prize that awaits where yet we cannot see but you know and you trust God for as Christians we know that one day we will know God's presence perfectly once more as we spend eternity with him in his new kingdom now having rejected Eden will be welcomed in to the new Jerusalem where ruins and rebels have been restored and all 
worship before his throne. The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, forgiveness receives.